I'm Luke Zamperini, I'm Louis's only son, and I'm uh, Lance's relief for the evening. <laughs> uh, this uh, documentary was made for the 1998 Nagano Olympics, and when uh, my dad got to carry the torch in the torch relay, he was the only non-Japanese uh, in Japan to be in the torch relay. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the mayor of the town of Nuetsu made it a holiday, let all the kids out of school, they could stand her along the side of the road and cheer him on. And uh, afterwards, um, they threw a banquet for him, the city hall, the mayor, and the city council. Said it was a very boring affair. Uh, and then the mayor asked him a couple of questions. He said, well, Mr. Zamperini, did anything good come out of two years in a Japanese prison camp? And he thought about it for a minute and says, well, yeah, it uh, prepared me for 55 years of married life. <laughs> the other question he asked him was, uh, was, wow, you know, seven weeks at sea in a life raft with nothing to eat, nothing to drink, that had to be the lowest point of your life. He said, well, no, the lowest point of my life was being rescued by the Japanese Navy. Uh, he said, so they, when they took him to the island, they, they threw him in a, in a, in a cell in the, uh, cut out of the coral for about 40 days, and they, during that time they him in for an interrogation. So he walks into this room, and here's six naval officers in their white uniforms with gold braids everywhere, and in front of them is a table full of pastries and other goodies and stuff. And I, I suppose the idea was that if you answered the, the, the question correctly, you'd get something to eat. And so while he was staying there, one of these officers said, uh, Lieutenant Zamperini, I'm a Trojan. I said, What? He goes, yes, when you were entering into the University of Southern California, I was just graduating. So my dad just thinking, wow, this is incredible. Out of the six guys here, he's the biggest stinker. And, you know, at SC, we believe in the excellency of morals and education, uh, excellence in sports. And here was the biggest stinker of them all. So he told me, he said, I had to come to the honest conclusion that he had to be a third-year transfer from UCLA. <laughs> Did I mention my dad has a sense of humor? Yeah. So, um, by the way, I, what I want to do is I want to talk about, now obviously this is a miraculous story, and there were miracles that occurred, and I want to talk and focus on some of these miracles. But I want to start by saying that he was actually very well prepared for his, his ordeal at sea. Uh, you know, he was a, an Eagle Scout growing up, and he learned survival skills as a scout. He learned uh, first aid, uh, and uh, among you know, many other things. He also took physiology in college, and he had uh, learned that the mind was like a, a, a muscle, that if you didn't use it, it would atrophy. Uh, and uh, he also took a, uh, a survival course in Honolulu. This, this course was open to all the GIs that were there, probably 50,000 men. And the course was, was on survival in the water with sharks. And my dad was one of 15 men who took this, this, uh, this course. So, and how this plays into it, we'll explore a little bit later. So, the first thing I want to talk about is the crash itself. So, here it was, uh, they were in a borrowed uh, B-24. Uh, this one was, they called it a musher. It just didn't fly well, and the engineers couldn't figure out why that was. But it had passed inspection, and it was given to them to, to use to go look for this down B-25. 
So now they're flying, about, they're flying under the cloud cover. It puts them about 800 feet above the water. And uh, all of a sudden, one of the engines goes bad. It just it stops uh, you know, spinning. And so what the pilot would do at that point is he would uh, do what's called uh, feathering the engine. The propellers are, are set at an angle here to, to pull air through them. And so now, with it not spinning, the, they're, they're creating drag. So by feathering them, they turn the blades that way. And so what the pilot did, he asked the engineer to come up and feather the engine for him. That was the number one engine. And the guy feathered the wrong engine. He feathered the number two engine, so now he had two engines on one side of the plane gone, and the other two on the other side were running. And so the, the natural tendency of the pilot is, when he's losing power like this, is to gun the other remaining two engines, and that just made the plane flip over, and it cartwheeled into the ocean. 800 feet above the water is not a whole, doesn't give you a whole lot of time, but my dad was able to get to his crash station, which was at the uh, waste gunner windows. And his job was to grab an, uh, an uninflated raft and get next to the window there and hang on to it. There was another guy that was supposed to uh, pull two levers that would release in, uh, rafts that would inflate as they fly out of the airplane uh, into the water. So the crash happens, and right next to the window is the machine gun mount. It's a little tripod up against the side of the, the fuselage. And so what happens is he gets shoved into the tripod with this raft under like this. And now he's stuck. He's stuck in there. And to make matters worse, the tail of the plane snapped off at this point. And so the, uh, the way the tail was controlled was by cables going from the flight back down back to where the tail and the rudder were. And when the tail snapped off, these wires came and wrapped around that tripod. Now he was completely entombed. They're in the water, and now he's, he can't get free. He's struggling, he's struggling, he's struggling, he can't get free. The water's coming up, coming up, coming up, and he takes a, a deep breath. Now, he used to, uh, used to time himself in the pool to see how long he could hold his breath, and he could hold it for about three and a half minutes. He had a tremendous lung capacity. And so now the plane is sinking, and he's still struggling. He can't get free. And he's, he's going down and getting darker and darker and darker. And finally, he just thinks, I'm dead. He, says, he just says, Lord, save me. And then he passes out. And he said it felt like a sledgehammer hit, it, hit him in the head, and he was just out. So then he kind of comes to and has this floating sensation. And he's thinking, well, this is the afterlife. And then his, uh, his SC ring catches on to a little piece of metal sticking out next to the window. And the force of the plane sinking uh, and the buoyancy in his body caused so much pressure that it cut his finger down to the bone. But it woke him up enough to, so he would realize it where he was. And it's, just like, it's, it's very dark now. It had to be 100 uh, feet uh, below the surface. And so now he's oriented to where he is, and he pulls himself out of the window and gets to the surface, uh, finds the rafts that are inflated, uh, uh, you know, gathers the two other survivors of the crash, and he never could figure out how he got free. He couldn't free himself. He called to the Lord to save him. He passed out. Next thing you know, he's free. He is convinced that uh, for the rest of his life that he had a guardian angel. And so he thought he'd name him. He named him Victor for victory, and whenever he'd pray, he'd always put a good word in for Victor. <laughs> so that was miracle number one. Now, there, 
They're on this raft for uh, about the 27th day. There is a, this Japanese plane shows up, and for some reason they thought this would be good target practice, so it, they started strafing the raft. Now, my dad's Boy Scout training not only helped him uh, use his medical skills to save the pilot's life because he had a big gash in his head from the, from the, the crash, but he also realized that the bullets lose their velocity in about three or four feet of water. So that's why he dove off the raft to go under the raft and uh, to avoid the bullets. And so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line coming off the raft, and he's hanging on to that. Otherwise, the, the current on the surface would, would take the raft away uh, at a greater distance or a greater speed than my dad could catch up with it, so he would be without any, uh, any ways to get back in the raft. So the problem is, is that down underwater there was a couple of sharks, about uh, six or eight footers. And so now... Here come the sharks. And so he, he said in the, in, the tra- in, the, uh, in the training class he took, they said, well, look, sharks don't like to see white. So the first thing you do is you show them the whites of your eyes and your teeth. So he's doing this. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work. <laughs> so the next thing he thought he could do, it was the only thing he could do, he's hanging on to the, the line to the raft in the one hand, and here comes the shark. He's coming up, and it kind of makes a little turn to line its mouth up with his body. So he reaches out, and he straight arms the shark. He just pushes on the shark's nose. Boom, it takes off. It's a big, big, wide turn. He goes back up to the surface, gets some air. Here comes the plane again. He goes back down and does the whole thing over again with the shark. And, you know, in the meantime, he's seeing bullet holes after bullet holes going through the raft. You see the sunlight streaming through the holes He's convinced that his buddies that stayed in the raft are dead. So finally, the plane takes one last pass and drops a, a depth charge, he thought, into the water. And it, it was a dud. It didn't go off. So he climbs back up into the raft. And here it is. They count the holes up later on. There were 48 bullet holes in this raft. And the raft is, is just large enough for two men to get in. And here's these two guys laying there, 48 bullet holes and not a scratch. Holes about an eighth of an inch from the guy's uh, leg or arm, not a scratch. That was pretty miraculous, too. And uh, so now here's the, the tough part. You get back in the raft, and the raft isn't really a raft anymore. It's sinking. So the air is all coming out of it. Instead of, instead of sitting on top of the water, it's partly submerged. So now they've got to figure we, the only way to survive is we've got to pump air into it. So the survival kit or the tool kit they had in the raft, they, they had a, a, a pump, a little hand pump. And so the pilot grabbed that and started pumping air into uh, the valve in the raft. There's like two, two, two sections of the raft that you could pump up one at a time. So he's pumping it up, pumping it up, pumping it up. And so my dad gets out the, the, uh, the repair kit. So it's got, uh, you know, some, some rubber dope and some rubber patches and sandpaper. The only problem is the sandpaper was, wasn't meant to get wet. So it, had, it was useless. The, the, all, the, all the grit was gone. And this toolkit also didn't have a knife. It had a, uh, had a pair of pliers with a screwdriver on the end of it, but they never could figure out what the purpose of that thing was for. But no knife. He, had, he was convinced that this thing had to have been outfitted by the Japanese Navy. <laughs> so um, 
now, so he has to pull up the bottom of the raft and start to cut in to the, uh, to the rubber. But the only thing he had to cut with was a little brass mirror. So the brass mirror was for reflecting, you know, to try to get uh, planes' attention. So he took the pair of pliers and gnarled up the edge of this mirror and used that to saw through the, the, the canvas to get down to where the rubber part was to do the patch. And, of course, what's hard is that you get the dope on there, and it's, it's, got, to, it's got to set up a little bit, and before you get the patch on there, a little white cap breaks onto the boat and washes it all away. So you've got to keep, keep doing it. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was at this point, the sharks figured it's lunchtime. And so out of the water, they come jumping up into the raft, going right for my dad's head. And then out of nowhere, this big oar swings. And so the, the tail gunner, McNamara, who was the one who ate all the chocolate that night and was kind of a, a useless person on the Odyssey, he had picked up the aluminum oars, and he was protecting my dad and the pilot from the sharks. So they had to patch that. Oh, by the way, they, uh, they used the amount of time that the plane was strafing them to figure out how far away they were from land. They knew that the plane had so much fuel, it had so much time they could spend around the target area, then they had to get back to base. And so the time that, the, that this plane spent there, the time that he was in the water doing his ballet with the sharks, was 40 minutes 40 minutes. I, you know, I don't know about you. If a shark is coming at me, I just want to do this. You know? But 40 minutes of straight arming a shark. It turns out that the shark's nose is very sensitive. And there are actually, I've seen footage of people that, that they, they will pet the shark on the nose and it puts them to sleep. So when he pushed off on the shark's nose, it, uh, it, uh, it worked. And I said, well, you know, what did you, did you punch the shark? No, you can't punch the shark. You, uh, if you miss and your hand goes in his mouth, you're lunch. <laughs> so they had to pump air into the rafts 24-7 for three days until they got sufficiently pumped. And so it got to the point where they were getting so weak that they just hold the canister and put the handle against their body and just pull it in like this. They had to take turns 10 minutes, off, uh, 10 minutes on, 20 minutes off. After they got it sufficiently pumped up, they only had to pump it up once every hour for 10 minutes. And that was the way it was for the next 20 days. So then there's a point where they were out of water. And they were, the way they were getting water was by whenever there'd be a little sea squall coming over, a, crowd, a cloud would drop some rain. They'd reach up, open their mouths, get what water they could, they had, uh, you know, uh, took the, the cover for the toolkit and used it as a funnel to try to funnel water uh, into one of the little tins uh, of water that they had in the raft with them. And so, but it had been seven days since they had any water. Now, you know, are there any, any doctors in the house? Okay. Uh, but doctors and scientists will tell you that, that you can survive three to five days without water Maybe less if you're in a tropical or, or desert condition. And they were floating in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. It was hot. And it had been seven days without any water. And at this point, this was my dad's first prayer. And he just said, Lord, if you, if you get me through this and get me home alive, I will seek you and serve you my entire life. And then you look. 
and off in the distance is a cloud on the horizon, and it's coming towards them, and they start paddling towards the cloud, and sure enough, it's a sea squall, and they got water. They drank what they could. They filled the tins with as much as they could, and it was amazing. It was a miracle. He prayed. He was out of water. He prayed, and the rains came. Now, two more times during the Odyssey, the same thing occurred. Completely out of water, prayed that prayer again, and the rains came. Miracle number three. So then, after 47 days, the Japanese Navy picked them up. I know in the documentary it says they they crawled ashore, but that's actually incorrect. As a matter of fact, almost every article or documentary I've ever seen on my dad is incorrect in one way or another. It's, uh, the, the book Unbroken was the very closest to the story, the actual story. She did a, a fantastic job. Um, so the Japanese uh, picked him up, and here they pulled in these two skinny men. Now, when my dad was a world-class athlete, five foot 10, 155 pounds, when the Japanese picked him up, they weighed him, and he weighed 66 pounds. That was two-thirds of his body mass was gone. And then when they saw the raft, your attention immediately went to that to see all those bullet holes in there. They said, well, what happened? They said, well, your Air Force decided to do target practice on it. Oh, no, Japanese uh, Air Force wouldn't do something like that. Well, they did. So uh, then they put him in a prison camp. And the first camp they put him in uh, was a camp that was not declared to the Red Cross. It was where they put people that they were not going to register as POWs. And he spent a year in this place where you were not allowed to talk. You had to look at the ground at all the time. Uh, it was, uh, the, the idea was to keep him for 13 months before they declare him alive. And the reason they did that is it was the policy of the United States War Department to wait a, month, a year and a month before declaring an MIA as killed in action. And so the idea was that they would hold him in there till the 13 months go past, get him to do the radio broadcast and try to humiliate the United States military. And uh, so after he got out of that secret camp, they gave him to... They, gave him, they put him in a place called Omori Prison where he met the bird. And the first thing the bird did when he saw him was, was beat him. And he beat him every day, every single day for the next uh, 14 months. And at one point, I don't know, if, how many of you have seen the film Unbroken? Okay, so the scene where he has all the enlisted men in the camp uh, punch him out, that happened, 225 guys. Uh, punched him out. And so the idea was to soften him up, to break, to break him so he would agree to do the propaganda broadcasts that were coming after that initial one. Uh, so, you know, my dad uh, was, um, his first reaction at being beat by the bird was he wanted revenge. But he knew if he, if he struck back, uh, they would kill him. So he, he just held it in. He, he internalized it. And almost immediately, it began to manifest itself in these dreams, where he's being beaten by the bird in the, in the dream with a kendo stick, or the guy had a, a, a belt with a big, big heavy iron uh, belt buckle. He'd hit him in the head with that, beat him in the, uh, all around his body with it. So in the dreams, he's being beaten by the bird, and then he gets him around the throat, and he's choking the life out of him. 
So this is how he dealt with that, that, that need for revenge. And my, my dad was basically a, a pretty defiant person. He was a juvenile delinquent, and he was fortunate enough to, to uh, channel that defiance into athletics. And that turned his life around to a certain point. So now the, the, you know, the war comes to an end, and he comes back home. And the one thing he brought with him were those, those dreams. And uh, you know, he meets my mom, they get married, the, the dreams are still happening, it's uh, really bothering him. He gets irritable. He starts to self-medicate with alcohol. Uh, he would, uh, if you cut him off on the road, he'd pull you over, pull you out of your car, and beat the tar out of you. He was just a, he was beginning to get really, uh, <laughs> really unreasonable. Uh, so he go to the VA hospital. What's going on? Well, we don't know what it is. We think it might be shell shock or something like that. Well, it was post-traumatic stress disorder. Only they didn't know what it was back then, and they didn't know how to treat it. So uh, he just kept spiraling out of control and, and getting worse and worse and worse. He'd, he'd uh, go out drinking with his buddies and come home and wake up in the morning and have no idea where he left his car. He'd look at his brand new shoes and the heels are worn out. He'd been wandering all around uh, town for, for hours at a time. It got so bad that my mom said, well, Louis, I've had enough. I've called my parents, and they agree. I'm going to divorce you. And, uh, you know, my sister was about, uh, about 10 months old at that point. And so, um, well, that was really terrible news to him because he really loved my mom. But then something happened. There was a young couple that lived in the same apartment building with them in Hollywood who said, hey, there's this really great preacher in a tent downtown Los Angeles. We want you to come and hear him with us. And my dad's saying, there's no way, because I've seen those you know, revival tents before, and I don't like what's going on in there, and I, there's no way I'm going. But my mom goes. And so she comes home that night and says, Louis, because of the newfound joy in my heart, I've decided I'm not going to divorce you. And boy, that, that was good news to him. She says, but you've got to come with me tomorrow night and hear this man preach. And she finally talked him into it, and he said, well, okay, but here's the condition. When he gets to the point and he tells, us, tells me that I'm a sinner, I don't need to hear that. I, I know I'm a sinner. And so if I get offended, we're going to leave. And she said, okay, she, she agreed to it. Uh, and uh, so uh, they went down to the tent meeting, and he's walking up there. He was on the corner of, uh, of uh, Hill Street and Washington Street. And there's this big tent. They call it the Canvas Cathedral. And up on the banner there, it shows a picture of Billy Graham. And he's going, well, that's not the typical, that's not the image I have of a revival preacher. This guy looks, you know, athletic, good-looking. Uh, so maybe I'll give him the benefit of a doubt. So they go in, they sit down, and he described it as there was uh, sawdust floors, you know, they put sawdust over the dirt where they put the tent, and they get into the middle of, the, of a row someplace. And sure enough, he gets to that point where he's being offended, and he says, come on, we're going. He grabs my mom by the hand, and he makes his way to the aisle and out through the back of the tent and home. He says, don't ever take me to a place like that again. Well, Lou, I just want to remind you that because of my newfound relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm not going to divorce you. So she talks him into going back again. He says, 
okay, okay, but the same condition applies. When I'm offended, we're gone. And so she says, okay, okay, great. So they go, and sure enough, gets to the same point where he wants to get out of there, and he just grabs her by the hand, starts making his way back to the aisleway, and then he hears uh, Reverend Graham saying something to this effect, that when you get to the end of your rope and you have nowhere else to turn, that's when men turn to God to save them from whatever situation they're in. And that immediately reminded him of that prayer he had on the raft when he was out of water for seven days. The prayer that he repeated in the prison camp, by the way. And so he said, I just felt so bad. He says, there, there, there was God took care of his part of the bargain. He got me home alive, and, uh, and I, I didn't fulfill my part. So the way Laura Hillenbrand described it in the book is that at this point he could feel that rain falling on his face from when those clouds came over and were, were finally sating his thirst. And that's when he just got to the aisle, and he just let go of her hand and walked down towards the stage. And there was, they had a little area off to the side of the stage where they had counselors there to help you go through the process of giving your life to Jesus Christ. And so he told me, he said, he says, I'll tell you, you know, when I got up off my knees after doing the sinner's prayer, he said, I, I knew I was get done getting drunk, I, I knew I was done fighting, and I knew I'd forgiven my prison guards, even the birds, even the bird. And he said he went home that night. It was the first night in nearly five years he didn't have that dream and he never had it again the rest of his life. His PTSD was gone like that. Now, does that happen to anybody who comes to Jesus Christ? No, but it happened to my dad. All these miraculous things happened to him for the purpose of him being able to share his testimony with the world. And so his PTSD was gone. That uh, next morning he got up and got his, his uh, army-issued New Testament that he'd looked through before, didn't make any sense to him ever. And then he went down to the park near where they lived, and he sat there, and he, he started reading his Bible, and suddenly it was starting to make sense to him. And uh, so... Uh, and what had happened, at, this, was, this was the first Graham crusade. This was supposed to be two weeks downtown. They, they held it over for eight weeks. <clears throat> and my dad, who was a, a celebrity, here he was, this great world athlete who came back from the dead, presumably, you know, at the end of the war. My dad, uh, a guy named Stuart Hamlin, who was a singing cowboy, he was quite a celebrity as well, and a guy named, uh, I think it was Paul Voss. He was, uh, he was a wiretapper for the gangster Mickey Cohen. So the three of them got saved in this meeting, and it, uh, there was somebody watching, and that was the newspapers. The newspapers were owned by William Randolph Hearst, who saw what was going on here and told all of his papers across the country, I want you to puff Graham, puff Graham. So it was a celebrity event that, that had happened here. And so now my dad was being asked to come and speak places and give his testimony. And people would come up to him and say, well, here, here's, uh, I'd like to donate some money to you to go back to Japan. And you go, what, what? I'm not going back to Japan. Well, you know, here's you know, $10 or whatever. And it just kept happening, just kept happening. And then one guy, he, he, uh, he spoke at a meeting in Indiana 
And there was a man from Texas there who went back to his home in Texas, sold his car, and sent the $500 he made from that car to my dad just so for your mission back to Japan. So I guess he goes, okay, Laura, I, I know when you're telling me what you're telling me to do. Because he wanted to go back to Germany where he was in the Olympics and be a missionary there. But he was going back to Japan. Now, he knew that he'd forgiven his guards. But he didn't know how he'd feel when he looked him in the eye. So this was a very long flight back to Japan in 1950. And uh, so he was... Uh, a little apprehensive about it. He, he gets there and finds out that all of his prison guards, which are now themselves uh, uh, considered war criminals, were in a place called Sugamu Prison. So they themselves were prisoners now. And he tried to get in. And he said, sorry, we can't let anybody into the prison. So he goes to General MacArthur's headquarters and says, says hey, what's going on here? You asked for 25,000 missionaries and a million Bibles to come to, to Japan. We're here. Let us in. So he finally got into Sagamo Prison, uh, where he got up there and he gave, he forgave his captors, his former captors, from the stage, gave him his testimony, and he went down in the audience and embraced them, these guys that were being horrible to him. Of course, the bird wasn't there. And so, but that was quite a moment for him, because when he actually looked them in the eye, he was able to forgive them. Now, you might ask, I mean, how does somebody forgive someone who's treated him so cruelly like that, who's never, uh, you know, never asked for forgiveness? But how do you forgive him? What's the mechanics of that? How does one do that? Well, I'll tell you that with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So for my dad to be able to, to forgive the bird... He had to love him with the very same love that God had for him and us when he sent his son to die for our sins on the cross. That's what did it. So when he came back from Japan, he said, what am I going to do with my life? You know, he, tried, he had tried all these get-rich-quick schemes that didn't seem to work. So he decided instead he's going to uh, have a life of service uh, for other people. So he starts a... A, a, a nonprofit in 1952 called Victory Boys Camp, and he figured that he can, if he can get through to juvenile delinquents like he was as a kid, uh, and make a difference in their life and introduce them to Jesus Christ, this was a worthwhile goal. And uh, so, as a matter of fact, on that the opening senior with the "This Is Your Life," they gave him a car and a camera and all kinds of. Uh, 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 money to help him start his camp, you know, or to, or to continue his camp at that point. So there he was. He spent the, the last 60 years, 65 years of his life uh, in service to other people. And I remember the last conversation I had with my dad. He'd spent, he spent 40 days on a life raft, and he spent 40 days on a, a, a being intubated on a respiratory machine. And, you know, when you, I don't know if, how many of you have had this experience, but when you talk to your parent or loved one and they have that tube in them, it's pretty much a one-way conversation. Uh, so uh, I was able to establish by asking him certain yes and no questions that if his mind was there. Now, he was 97 and a half years old. And uh, so his, his mind was there. And so 
Finally, it took them 40 days for, to get weaned off the respirator. That's, that's the goal, is to get you being able to, to work your, your respiratory system on your own. And the doctor called me and said, we, got him, we finally got him off the respirator, but there's a problem. I think you need to come to the hospital. So I get to the hospital, and he says, he can't cough. I go, well, what do you mean? Is that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? He says, it's a bad thing. He needs to be able to clear his lungs or he will drown. Uh, and so I went in and talked to him and said, uh, you know, Dad, I explained the situation to him. and said, so can you cough for me? And he couldn't do it. And I said, well, then, Dad, uh, you're not beating this one. You're going to go home to be with the Lord today. Do you understand that? And he goes, yeah. And I just see him look on his face like, oh, all this work for nothing. He was trying to stay alive for the premiere of the movie Unbroken. And... More than that, he was to be the Grand Marshal of the Tournament of Roses parade uh, that, uh, that January 1st. And so, uh, so he, I could really tell that he was just regretting all that hard work, and he, and he was having to go home. And I said, well, look, Dad. I said, so you're going home to be with the Lord today, but you know your work here on earth is not done. Your story is going to affect people for generations to come. And that's why my wife and my family and myself, we decided that we would continue his work after he's gone uh, by taking over his Victory Boys camp. And we, uh, there was, at this point, there was no camp facility, but it was still uh, active in the fact that he was helping, helping uh, young people find their way. As a matter of fact, the very last Victory Boy, uh, uh, six months before Dad passed away, uh, this boy came to us. He'd been addicted to heroin, and you could still see the, you know, the, the crosses for eyes. He was, you know, they had that look. They're just otherworldly. And um, so I said, well, he's a perfect candidate. Let's go see Dad. So uh, we were able to, my dad was able to talk to him for two hours and sent him off to Australia to a place called uh, Youth of the Mission, there's, they have these facilities all around the world. This one, the one in Australia, would accept the, 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 the uh, boy from a Christian family who's got drug problems. And they were able to turn him around, and he's now a missionary. Uh, he's in India currently. He's been in India, Nepal. Uh, he was actually doing missionary work in South Sudan. I don't know if you know how dangerous that is. But... Um, so that was the last victory boy, and he, was, he got turned around. So we've, we're continuing this effort. We've rebranded uh, the, the charity, the Louis Zamperini Foundation. Uh, we continue to deal with uh, kids in the inner cities. We partner with other organizations that, uh, that are focused on um, uh, foster care kids. Do you know that... Uh, 72% of foster kids end up being incarcerated at some point in their life. So this is a, this is a, a really big mission field for us. And we also, we work, we've gone into the, uh, uh, the uh, Ventura County Youth Correctional Facility, which is one of two facilities in the state that house underage criminals. And these are, these are not petty thieves. Uh, the only reason these kids are there, not San Quentin, is that they were under 18 when they murdered or, or, or did armed robbery. Uh, so, and i got to tell you, uh, you know, I'm enjoying talking to you people here tonight. 
But boy, did I really enjoy talking to those kids in there because one, it was a captive audience. They couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, but I could really tell that they were eager to hear the message and they were e- eager to find a way out of the predicament they were in. They're in... They're at the end of their ropes so bad that they're actually incarcerated and trying, trying to remake their lives. So that's why we've continued to do the work. Uh, I think his story affects people in ways that a lot of stories won't. It's like I, you know, I could stand here and, and say, you know, start quoting scripture and tell you why you should believe, but uh, I just tell my dad's story, and this, this is, makes... His story makes him a witness for Jesus Christ because he witnessed those miracles in his own life that turned him around. And uh, so that's the, the mission that we're on now. And uh, my beautiful wife, Lisa, is actually doing all the hard work of, uh, of doing all the, keeping the website going and dealing with all the, the partners we have. And, but uh, I, I would like at this point, though, to uh, open up for some questions and answers I encourage you to ask whatever questions you want about the story, the foundation, uh, anything. So, anyone? Do I see a hand anywhere? Don't be bashful. Yes, sir. I was just wondering what, what's going to happen with the burden. Why, why would the, the burden be that? Okay, so, uh, you know, it was quite a shock. When the producer of that uh, documentary called my dad up and said, Hey, Louie, are you sitting down? Yeah. He says, Well, hang on to your seat. What? He says, We found the bird. He's alive. Because everyone thought he was dead. So they had found him, and they kept trying to get him to talk to them. And finally, they figured out where he lived, and they just waited outside his house and caught him walking up and started talking to him. And he agreed to go upstairs and be interviewed. And so while they're sitting up there, talking, uh, his son and grandson are, are there as well, and they knew nothing about his, his life in the war, and they, at a certain point, they stopped the interview and said, we will not let our father go through this, and we will not let him meet with this American who will expect him to grovel and beg for forgiveness, which would have not been the case. I said, Dad, what would you have said to the bird when you, when you saw him again? Well, you know, I, I'd have put my arm around him, asked him how his family was doing, and tell them about the joys of, of, of life with Jesus Christ. And uh, so the, the, the family wouldn't let him do it, and the feeling was he wasn't really all that interested in doing it anyhow. Yes, sir. How was Angelina Jolie affected by meeting my dad? Well, uh, she was... Uh, um, she was very affected by it. She was, this, she was meeting her hero when she came over to, to talk to him uh, about doing the film. And, um, you know, it's kind of, a, kind of a strange dynamic here with her and Brad Pitt at the time because Brad Pitt grew up in a Christian family in Missouri. And uh, we met his, his parents. They're good Christian people. Brad's kind of throwing the whole thing off. But uh, Angie... Uh, she believes there's something out there. She might believe in the God of Spinoza, you know. It's like some, some impersonal force out there. And uh, so when she came back from filming the movie, it was all shot in Australia. Uh, she said, oh, well, she said, we tried to recreate the shark scenes and we just couldn't do it. The stunt, stunt men couldn't 
maneuver around in the raft without falling into the water. The stunt coordinators are saying, you guys are all going to be eaten by sharks. And then she said, there was, I had one scene left to shoot. It was supposed to be in Hawaii, and I had two days to do it, and we had a typhoon in Australia. And so she said, I called the studio and, and said, I need two more days here. And they said, we don't have weather insurance, so you either shoot the scene or you come home, but you can't stay longer. So she told me, she says, so I tried it Louis style. I got down on my, on my knees and started praying for clear weather. And then she opens her laptop and shows me a picture of a big double rainbow that happened. So she's praying for clear weather. The skies part. And she's yelling, roll film! And gets this last scene shot. And she said, no sooner did she say, that's a wrap, that the clouds all came back and the storm resumed. So she goes, I know there's something out there. I go, we've been trying to tell you, Angie, you know. And and my dad was also, uh, he, you know, he never let an opportunity go by where he didn't talk to someone about about his Lord and Savior. Uh, so how he affects her life long-term, we'll see. You know, we all would like to be the one that closes the deal. But uh, in reality, we plant the seed, we water the seed that someone else planted, and the Holy Spirit is, does the harvest, reaps, reaps the harvest. So we'll see what happens in her life down the road. And I, I've, I've met plenty of people who had said, as a matter of fact, one of the, we were on a cruise ship, and my dad was giving a speech, and we got to the Q&A part, and the guy stands up and goes, well, Mr. Zamperini, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I was in your camp program in 1957. And this guy about my age, and uh, he said, well, the things that you told me, it didn't change my life at the moment, but it stuck with me, and some years later, I, made, I gave my decision to Jesus Christ, and now I'm a successful businessman, happily married, great kids. And uh, so this was, you know, 40, 50 years later, he hears this feedback. So we'll see how long it takes to get through to Brad and Angie. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, my dad did write an autobiography uh, in 1956 called Devil at My Heels. And uh, he sold the movie rights for that book to Universal. They were going to use it as a vehicle for a new upcoming actor named Tony Curtis, who was the first actor wanting to play my dad. Um, and uh, he went off and did Spartacus instead. Uh, and then the project just got shelved. It took 57 years for, that, for this story to make it to the big screen. Uh, and so uh, the original Devil at My Heels is no longer in print, but my dad rewrote it again in 2003, and the reason he did that was because um, when they sent his, his uh, sea chest home, when he was uh, you know, missing in action, it had his diary in there, and it got to my grandmother's house, and she put it in the basement, threw a blanket on it, and we never saw it again until she died, and we were going through the, the, her stuff, and he found his diary, and so he went back and, and rewrote uh, uh, Devil at My Heels, and that one's still in print. As a matter of fact, he wrote uh, a, 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 another book that was, went to the publisher two days before he died and was released right about the same time that the film came out in December 2014. And that's called Don't Give Up, Don't Give In. And it's the life lessons learned from this incredible life. And so take all those experiences that he had 
and he drew conclusions and stuff. And there's, I mean, each chapter is about a page and a half long. It's perfect for kids. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and it has some details in his life that occurred after the, uh, the unbroken story ended. For instance, he was lost at sea two more times. And uh, once uh, in 1948, he was, uh, he was on a sailboat. They were sailing to Acapulco, and they got into a white squall, which blew him 200 miles out to sea, ripped the, sh- the, the sails to pieces, broke the rudder pin. Uh, only this time, instead of just having some fish hooks and a couple bars of chocolate, uh, they had a big tub of butter and langostino and all the booze you, you could possibly want on the ocean. So they, they, had a, they had a good time, but they were the Coast Guard was concerned because they were radioing in every day. And so it's, I, you, I, in my dad's scrapbook, it, there's a headline. L.A. Times, front page, Zamperini missing at sea again. <laughs> and then uh, another time he was, he was lost, but not for such a, such a great period of time. Okay. Yes, ma'am? Did your mother and father read to you the Lord? Share the Lord with you, or did you learn the story? Well, yes. Like I said, my dad loved to talk about his Lord and Savior, so I was uh, learning about Jesus very early in life. Now, um, I, I didn't go to Christian camps. You know, I didn't go to Forest Home or Lake Hume or any of those things. I went to Victory Boys Camp with my dad, and so it was uh, in 1960, going about 70 miles an hour southbound on Highway 395 up around Mammoth Lakes area, that I I made my decision that I I believed Jesus was real, and and that and that the Bible was was the truth, and uh, but then again I grew up in I, I grew up in Hollywood in the 1960s. So, you know, when I became of age, it was the middle of the rock and roll uh, generation, free love, uh, free drugs. I mean, it was just something. And I, I, I took a path that was, uh, although I, I was a believer, I was not living like a believer. And uh, it wasn't until uh, about, uh, you know, tw- 20 years later that, um, or maybe t- 10 or 15 years later that I had come to the realization that, as a matter of fact, it's going to sound strange because I'm not one of these people that believe in, in you, know, uh, uh, you know, funny things happening, but I, I had a dream. I had a dream, and the dream had some very clear pictures of good and evil in it, and then I was disturbed by this dream. I was, after about three days of thinking about it, I finally came to the conclusion that God was telling me that you're no good to me as a witness because you can't preach the gospel from the bottom of a beer bottle. And he said, so if you don't clean your act up, I'm taking you out of here. And so I got scared, turned my life around. Uh, six months later, I was rewarded by meeting my wife-to-be, Lisa. And uh, so it was, I, 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 my, my story was that of the prodigal son. Okay? So... But it was definitely my dad who led me to the Lord. Another question? Don't be bashful. Okay. Oh, yes. When is the new uh, 
Oh, yeah, the new film. Okay. Um, is if you read the book Unbroken and you saw the film, you realize they left the ending of the story out. And so as much as we tried to tell them, you shouldn't do this, you need to tell the whole story, they didn't do it. And then they found out the hard way that, uh, that we were right. Because the critics came out and the faith-based community came out. Everyone was up in arms. Where was the rest of the story? So the original producer, who spent 14 years trying to get uh, the story onto the silver screen, he stuck with it and he got Universal to agree to make a sequel. And so the, is Universal teamed up with Pure Flix uh, and... Uh, uh, and you're telling the rest of the story from the time he comes home through his PTSD to the Billy Graham tent revival to going back to Japan to forgive his, his guards. And something rather special has happened. Uh, in, uh, we were able to cast the Reverend Graham with none other than his grandson, William Franklin Graham IV. So Will Graham is playing his grandpa, and that we'll be filming that scene in about 10 days. Uh, so, and when does the movie come out? We don't know. The, the, uh, you know I've been on set a few times. It looks good. The script is good. Uh, it tells the, the whole story, the, the, the true story. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely centered on Jesus Christ. And with any luck, this will get through to a lot, a lot of people. Truly? Well, uh, since the book club, uh, my, the, the powerhouse behind the foundation went on vacation with my sister for <laughs> a couple of weeks. Uh, so um, we, are, uh, we are building a curriculum, and we're partnering with, uh, uh, with a royal family kids who reaches out to the foster care community. And we're coming up with a curriculum that we'll be able to, to use in camps all around the country. A Louis Zamperini curriculum. So that's, that's what we're working on right, right now. And, of course, uh, fundraising is always a challenge. That's pretty much what we spend all of our time doing is trying to, you know, we actually made a mistake. We thought, well, how will Victory Boys Camp sound? We, maybe we need to put my dad's name into the, the, the title here. So we came up with the Louis Zamperini Foundation. So what we found out afterwards, after we went ahead and filed the DBA and all that stuff, is uh, f- in the world of charitable giving, foundation sounds like you're the one with all the money. Okay, so uh, we're going to probably have to rebrand again. So, uh, but we are, you know, we 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 uh, uh, we have been getting some help, and I and I'll tell you, this is kind of a kind of a strange story, but. Um, We, uh, we found a place called, called uh, Charity Buzz. And so you can, if you get celebrities to do things, uh, you know, whether it's have a lunch with somebody or, or uh, you know, uh, use their name as a character in a book or whatever, they, they, they'll, they'll bid on that. And I thought, well, who was trying to get through to my dad before he died? And this guy named John Travolta. He's a Scientologist. <laughs> and, uh, and he's a biggie in the Scientology movement. Well... Uh, Charity Buzz says, oh, you can't get Travolta. He'll, he'll, he, they've been after him for years. He won't do anything like this. So Lisa gets a, gets a hold of uh, his publicist and puts forth uh, the question and uh, said, would he be willing to, like, have a lunch of, and with the proceeds going to the Louis Amperini Foundation? And he said, yes. 
Of course, it has to be in L.A. or, or Clearwater, Florida, where the two Scientology headquarters. But he, he did it, and we were able to make $20,000 off a single launch. That was, that was a pretty good thing. So whether he knows it or not, he's furthering the work of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't you love Hollywood? Okay. <laughs> This is my better half. Okay. And just back, um, is Don? A little closer. Don? Yeah? I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, just back last night around midnight, um, I took off for nine nights with Luke's sister to Hawaii, so don't feel too terribly for me. (laughs) Um, But I am jet-lagged, I will say that. I've had the privilege, really, of coming alongside uh, my father-in-law's story. Uh, the impact it's had on so many people, I would say at this point, in the millions, through the book, through the film. When he was sick, uh, our son, we have one son, Clay, uh, he was not willing to give up Victory Boys Camp. And at the time, he was working in advertising, and he, he asked if there was some way that we could continue Victory Boys Camp. Neither one of us had any, any real experience in that, but by faith we stepped out and said, okay, we can do this. Our son took it over for about a year and a half. Um, it was under the guidance, though, of the Jolie Pitt Foundation because they were the, the ones that were mostly in our lives in a philanthropic way at that point. And the advice that they gave our son was not necessarily uh, the best for a Christian um, organization. It, it left out Jesus Christ for the most part. It tried to take a lane that would appeal to all people. In fact, true story, Angelina Jolie donated a one-page ad in People Magazine to us, to the Victory Boys Camp, actually the Louis Zamperini Foundation, and that was valued, I think, somewhere around $350,000 great gift, but we had to keep that ad in the confines of what she wanted. And I, I asked Laura Hillenbrand if she would write something along with me for an ad. And she took some of the most beautiful parts out of Unbroken to create an ad. I had nothing but pushback on that, and there was a certain way that Angelina wanted this ad to go. Well, what happened was the ad came out in People magazine, and we got one donation from that ad for $11. Not $10. No. <laughs> not $20. Okay. $11. $11. What was amazing about that is, for me, that was the Lord saying, there's no, there's no lane here that excludes Jesus Christ from being at the center of what you are communicating. That is the message we are taking to the kids we speak to. There is no hope in any other name, but in the name of Jesus. So um, at that point, that was a turning away from all of that for me. Anything that I felt that they had to offer, I pray for them, but that's not, that's not really what guides us any longer. So now we have the privilege of finding out how you run a nonprofit, and day by day, um, we are learning. We have a lot to learn, but uh, the Lord has given us some extraordinary people to partner with. Uh, We are working with a pastor in the inner city, uh, Hope Central Watts Church, a pastor that does incredible work with inner city kids, 
We are raising funds for kids to go to camp. We're raising funds for kids to get Bibles uh, that, that would otherwise never have them. Partnering now with Royal Family Kids, they work with foster kids internationally. They get kids out of foster care homes, and for one week, these kids in foster care homes all around the world are taken out of their situation and given the opportunity to be in a Christian camp I won't go into all the details of how it's done, but it's quite extraordinary the way they uh, really have the body of Christ function to, to do all the work of the service of Royal Family Kids um, by really bringing, bringing their needs into the church community, having, having people like us uh, reach out to the foster kids, find the camps, get them into a camp setting. But, but each child that is taken out of a foster care home, has a one-to-one -one mentoring relationship that goes on for years. So these kids have incredible opportunities. They were so excited to be part of what we're doing that they are developing a multi-part and uh, uh, many different ways that they are writing curriculum uh, through video, through comics, through all, all kinds of mediums. And so we will have hopefully within the next year, uh, several types of, um, of ways of reaching kids, the kids that we work with that are incarcerated, kids that are in the inner cities. There's just, there's so much we're, we're hoping to do. But anyway, we're, we're a work in progress. The Lord is, uh, is moving in and through the foundation, which will probably be the Louis Zamperini Victory Missions, where, where um, youth missions, we're, Please pray for us to figure out what will be uh, the best direction. And if any of you have brochures that you picked up on the way in, those are older brochures. It's another thing I'm in the process of doing is making new brochures right now. But please feel free to take that. That does have our website. And we are um, excited about the ways that this film is going to shine a light. My biggest prayer request is that at the end of the film, it's not been determined yet how they will close the film. I'm hoping that the same way they used wraparound tiles in um, Unbroken to tell the rest of the story, not really, but about Louis going back and forgetting. They hinted at it. Yeah, okay. they hinted at it. We're hoping and praying that they will see that the most important thing that Louis did with the rest of his life was devoted to working with youth. And from 1952 until the end, he devoted his life to working with at-risk youth, very much like himself. And if they will present that as Luke said, at the end of his life, Luke said, but your work here is not finished, and it's not finished. So what he began in 1952, with God's grace, we hope to continue for many more years with that rescue. So that's it. Okay, and you know, what's nice about, I get invited to come and speak in high schools, public high schools, uh, military bases, uh, prisons, and what's nice about that is they hear the same story you're hearing here tonight. We're getting into the place where the name of Jesus Christ is forbidden, and we're, and we're getting it out there. And the reason why, they want to hear the story of Louis Zanfrey. They want to hear that. And you can't tell the story without telling the end of it, which is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ.